ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the smoothest glass of Amarula for your mind. Two crickets and a thorn tree. I'm half of your host, Nicholas Lorimer, joined as ever by the other half of your hosts, Mr. Gabriel Krauser. And you can hear him uh, pouring a drink there, so you can kind of maybe get a sense of what's in store for you today. I was I was pouring carrot juice over oh, ice. Yeah, is that what they're calling it these days? There might be there might be just a hint of vodka underneath the carrot <laughs> but it's like six o'clock on a Monday afternoon, and it's been a good day's work. And Nicholas just told me a wonderful story, which is that yesterday he was on the Big Daddy Liberty show. Cishan uh, Gubesi is the host. I like that show. Um, and Cishan uh, introduced Nick as half of two crickets and a thorn tree. And then a commenter popped up immediately and said, Smooth glass of Amarula for, for your mind. For your mind. Uh, and so whoever that was, shout out to you. <laughs> so uh, with, that, with that in mind, um, Gabriel wanted to start off by uh, improving the quality of his CV by reminding all of us that Princeton is in fact quite a good university. Hmm. And he has a very, uh, uh, he has the kind of way of doing that that I think very few universities get the chance to do, which is to brag about how many Nobel Prizes Princeton alum just won. <laughs> yeah. And I, I must, before, before you get into who won, um, I must say, uh, what's her name? Greta didn't win. Hmm. Uh, Greta Thunberg. And uh, say what you want about her politics and stuff. Um, I don't think she's quite comparable to a lot of the people who, you know, normally win these things. So I think it's probably a good thing she didn't win. Her, we want you to award. panic. I don't want you to think about it. I want you to panic. It's like, dude, you know, I mean, I could also encourage my children to stand outside of school and swear at adults for, I don't know, causing too much carbon or something. But mm. it doesn't seem quite, you know, like averting civil war in South Africa or uh, getting put under house arrest for protesting human rights abuses or, you know, <laughs> being forced into exile because the Chinese government wants to kill you. You know, it's not quite the same. <laughs> no, I think, I think there is broad daylight. Uh, <laughs> and as much as people like to make fun of the Peace Prize, some really amazing human beings have won it. This time... Um, it has been won by two journalists. The Russian is Dmitry Merutov, I think, uh, who is the chief uh, now editor. We see the other reason why you are desperately wanting to bring this up, because it's kind of uh, Russian. Your pro-Russian bias is showing. <laughs> nah, I like the Russians. No, dude, so it's, uh, my, uh, my brief anecdote about that is that so uh, he he is the chief editor of uh, Novaya Gazeta, which is just about the only thing that I read in Russian these days. And I don't do it very often. I kind of force myself once a month, I suppose, maybe a little bit more than that. Because I'm a bit lazy. Um, but uh, when I was reading Russian regularly, that would be my go-to. It was, there was like another Russian publication, New Times, um, which was more stridently anti-government and was very interesting. But sometimes it was it, it, the emotion got in the way of the information. And then all you came away with was like, okay, they hate Putin. Oh, yeah, uh, Putin if if I wanted to know that, I'd, I'd watch CNN. Like, <laughs> um, I'm trying to get like the inside story. So Novak Gazeta, I listened to this podcast with their deputy chief editor. 
uh, nice long form, like two hour interview when I was driving to Petra Tief. And she said, there's this really unfortunate thing, which is that it's a, it's a proper newspaper. It's really good. It's got like a, a good network of reporters. It's got some decent analysts. It draws in high profile interviews. Um, it's respected by the government. I don't think any of its journalists have been killed or arrested. Um, I think Politikovskaya, Anna Politikovskaya, who was killed, had a, had some professional relations with some of the people who work at Nova Gazeta, but that was pre-Nova Gazeta days. Nova Gazeta, by the way, just means new newspaper. Um, right. Anyway, so which gives you a sense of like its blandness, like it is relatively bland for the Russian newscape, which is which is fascinating. Sometimes a bit like, wild. <laughs> yeah, dude. I mean, Russian talk shows. If you think that it gets shouty on American talk shows, you should watch. Like Russian talk shows, they didn't have to introduce social distancing because they shout so much that for the mics to work. Like I saw an interview with the producer, like. We have very big stages because we are theatrical people. Uh, very cold until we talk about politics, then uh, white hot. So they, they just shout at each other, dude. Like, can I, can I just even when they agree on, that, on yeah. that one? Arab TV. Mm. Now, that, that's that's a contact sport. That's yeah. not, <laughs> you go look online, you can find videos. Usually, um, what's that called? They're called Mena or something like that, anyway. Uh, Middle East research, education, something like that. They translate Arabic political television into uh, into English, and so the subtitles and people. Firstly, they have these amazing phrases which are instantly memeable, and some of them have been memed. You know, like mm. uh, by Allah, if I call, if you call this journalism, then I will shoot myself. That was one of them. Um, <laughs> but uh, so much of it is 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 literally people throwing shoes at each other and getting into fist fights and the host having to dive in the middle to stop them it's it's like a full contact sport it's amazing anyway sorry to interrupt <laughs> yeah no dude battle i like battle of ideas when you have to wear a helmet because it's partly a reminder that in south africa we're kind of still in a nice place every now and then you have to yeah. wear a helmet for the most part it's just words and and that's yeah, a thing yeah, to yeah. cherish and, and to indeed. use indeed so so in russia it's not always like that but okay so her point about Novak gazeta was she said in stalin's days um there were big issues with russia uh, the soviet union being anti-semitic and you know i, I do like to remind people about anti-semitism the pale, as it were, is a phrase that was uh, coined in, in, in the Ruski land. Um, because it, it, uh, if you look at the pogroms of the 19th century, then you see race nationalism uh, at its root uh, in, a, in, in the sort of post-industrial era. And then you are more likely to take theories. Seriously, my thesis that World War I was a race war and that it was largely drummed up by Russian newspapers uh, who were for Slavism. Um, and, uh, and then that bad idea rolled on from there anyway. So the, the, the point of the antisemitism in the 1950s and forties was that there, there really was a basis for those allegations and Stalin promoted to one, to the top tier basically, but shared amongst equals, uh, a Jewish general. And so every time there was a charge that you guys are anti-Semitic, you'd say, no, but look at our Jew. 
How could we be anti-Semitic? We even he can we have even a Jew. Have, we have they a wheel Jew. him out on the stage. They unpack him from his box. <laughs> and he waves very nicely. He toasts to the vodka and then he goes back to wherever he came from. So they were like, this is what we are. I wish I could remember the general's name. But she was like, this is what we are. Every time Putin gets criticized um, for repressing media freedom, he's like, dude, check out Nova Gazeta. So she was like, unfortunately, the, the perversity is the more our prestige increases, uh, the more the prestige of Putin and his administration increases because they tolerate us. So we are the, we are the token of freedom, she said, uh, which I thought was a nice sort of English-Russian uh, phrase. Oh, what a horrible place to be, though, in some ways. It is terrible, and I can sympathize. I can definitely sympathize with that. Um, but okay, so good for them. The other uh, journalist who won the Peace Prize was Maria Rasa, who's a Princeton alum, mm -hmm. uh, reports in the Philippines. Um, and I, I was telling Nick before the show, I don't know her work that well. I have watched through the years a couple of Princeton speeches that she get, she has given because I sort of on on the email chain and I, I click through. I'm curious about you know other third world places and their struggles. Um, the impression that I've got, superficial as it is, is that she is gutsy, organized, disciplined, ethical, excellent reporter, uh, that her analysis is a bit soft. So in some sense, mm. it's a bit like Amabungani Daily Maverick, um, mm. who have done pretty good work. Although in that regard, I've got to say yesterday I was hanging out with uh, a pretty high flyer in, uh, in the civil service. Right, who has very nicely things about the Guptas to say uh, because they tried to bribe him several times. Um, but he pointed out, he asked me, have you read the Gupta leaks? And I actually know one of the journalists who got the Gupta leaks. And I was like, no, I haven't. And he was like, dude, you should read it. I read it. It completely blew my mind because it made me think that they were deliberately, like that their Bill Pottinger advisors had set up these email accounts so that they would be leaked later so that you could see how squeaky, squeaky, pristine clean they were. Those emails are 100% above water. It's not to say they weren't dodgy guys who did all kinds of terrible things. It's just to say that the so-called trove, treasure trove of evidence that everyone relies on is totally a red herring. Like so much so that it really seems fabricated, and I felt like such a pleb for 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 just. I, it made me realize I've got these blind spots, right? I just assume someone else has read them, and they have. And I try to think like, what's been quoted? What's like what detail came from the? I don't know. And then I felt a bit embarrassed. So anyway, so I don't think, and and that's not that's obviously not all of the evidence. There's really is good evidence and so on. Right, right, right. Um, but so Maria Rice's is great. Um, and when she addresses uh, the sort of woke left, um, she does so with words of caution. Um, you know, a lot of sympathy for the noble uh, ideals. Um, but uh, she's, she's, she's living in a tough situation and I think understands the danger of utopian thinking. Um, so I'm pretty, I'm pretty chuffed at that uh the who's next so next is in 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 the 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 economists who won the sort of memorial nobel prize um just yesterday 
Um, the first one graduated from Princeton. He got his PhD there, David Card. And insofar as I was ever a financial journalist, Card was kind of like, yeah, he was a real inspiration. Um, he did the study with another guy, Alan Kruger. I think Alan was his first name, who was a Princeton professor who were very handsome. He was almost never around on campus when we were there uh, because he was a, an advisor to Obama to get through the recession. Um, extremely successful career. Obama described him as maybe the most, uh, you know, trustworthy and uh, friend that he had in the economics advisory side. Um, so if you want to know how come Goldman Sachs got bailed out, uh, which ultimately was the right thing to do, uh, although not done in the right way, in my opinion. Anyway, uh, Kruger's, Kruger's <laughs> your man. Uh, Kruger killed himself uh, in 2019, which is kind of a blow, an odd... It's, I think it's always unusual. It's always especially strange when, when people in their 60s with illustrious careers and apparently good family lives end up doing that. Um, yeah. But anyway, so him and Card kind of... Um, they, they revolutionized how economists think about the minimum wage. And it changed my thinking. Uh, I, I kind of, you know, at high school, the basic idea when we were doing economic management sciences and at UCT doing Econ 101 is like, if you increase the price of something uh, and you keep its quality, then the amount that's demanded, that's effectively supplied, is going to come down. People are going to want to buy less of it. So if you increase the price of low-skilled labor, then you're going to also increase unemployment. Uh, and this sets up the dialectic. Like, So increasing the minimum wage might be politically expedient. You might say that there is a real argument that it's good for reducing uh, social tensions. Uh, but on the other hand, you're benefiting people who already have a job at the cost of people who don't have a job or on the margins. Uh, and this seems like a difficult trade-off. What Card and Kruger did was try to get some, some facts to stick onto this. Because just to say, so that, that's I've said the first a priori argument, the first theoretical argument. The second theoretical argument is that labor is sticky. In other words, it can be quite tricky to fire people uh, because of labor regulations or just because it's quite hard to replace them. Also, it's relatively easy to redistribute the cost if you're just increasing the price of labor a little bit. Right. Um, or, you know, and also, I mean, especially with smaller businesses, like I think they were studying this case restaurants, right? Hmm. It's kind of, it can be a little bit difficult, especially if you're a little bit of a softie as a boss to just go to your employees and be like, well, sorry, guys, minimum wage went up. Uh, half of you are gone. You know, it's, it's, yeah, I think it's emotional. It's kind of tough psychologically, emotionally. It, yeah, because it's, it's a physical, you know, there's a human being there. It's not like a there's massive a company where you just sign a, sign a, a, a paper and then half the company's gone. Yeah. Also, you know, you might think, okay, uh, I've got to pay them a little bit more. I'm not going to be able to replace them with machines. So let me train them more so that they're more productive. Also, right. you might think if people are getting paid a little bit more, it kind of boosts their morale and so they work a bit harder. Also, the thing I was trying to get to was we can feel this a little bit in our office. Like I just saw one of our colleagues posted on Facebook, like when we watched the Rugby World Cup together, we had a couple of bras sponsored by the office with booze and drinks and stuff. And it was like fun team building stuff. Uh, but so there are always fringe benefits to some degree. 
Uh, and if you have to increase the price of your labor, you might just take away those fringe benefits. So it's not actually changing the cost. Uh, but as an employer, you kind of want to be in control of how some of that money is spent. Uh, mm -hmm. And the, the government is basically just forcing you to let your employees decide. So instead of buying them their uniforms, they have to buy their own uniforms, but you're paying them more. So if that's how it works out, in the short run, it doesn't really make a difference. Uh, but maybe in the long run, it means that the employees get a little bit more discretion on how they spend their money. And if they want to spend that on a team building effort together, then you can sort of persuade them to pull in, chip in, and you know, we'll go off and do this thing. Uh, but you don't get the sort of paternalistic control. Um, let me just make it clear. I'm a big fan of a little bit of the paternalistic control because uh, organizations are um, uh, hierarchical structures uh, and there must be a boss whose who's say is kind of final. Um, so because that's how the agential flow of command and control right. works, I think it's nice if you have some social things that kind of, uh, give us, give, soften yeah. that. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, I think we've talked about this before. It's an idea of crypt from, uh, Jonah Goldberg, but you mustn't mix your microcosms and your macrocosms. They have different yeah. rules. Yeah. Um, and so just because we live in a free society doesn't mean that everyone has to have a vote on everything in every context. Exactly. Because next exactly. thing we'll let the children vote what's for supper. And if that was me, it was going to be McDonald's every day. <laughs> oh, wait, dude. Since you're talking about your youth, can we have a quick interjection about your youth day? Your, your uh, like, green, my green earth, celebration? My earth day. Oh, ah, yes. So we were listening to a presentation recently where one of our um, uh, friends was, was describing their uh, experience of Earth Day in the... Uh, 80s and 90s and about how they were a bit of an environmental activist and i was contrasting this uh, memory with my own memory of earth day when i was i think around 16. now i would say that i'm not really an environmentalist <laughs> um, i often joke that uh, that the best thing to do with nature is to pave over it um, <laughs> <laughs> i mean if and... you want to get a hospital quickly then yeah you know, shall we say not being entirely convinced um, by some of the arguments around uh, human-driven climate change. When I was 16, I spent uh, Earth Day putting on as many lights as possible and producing as much CO2 as possible just to make up for all the people who were turning off their lights that evening. Um, but the not best what I would do is, now. So you're like turning on the stove, you're turning on the lights, like yeah, the, the microwave. Oven. Everything. And then your parents, your parents eventually put a stop to it. Yeah, they said, they said, ha ha ha, very funny. And then they said, okay, you're going a bit overboard. You're wasting too much money now. <laughs> this is getting expensive now, dude. Stop it. I think that's great. <laughs> it's a great kind of lesson in. <laughs> yes. Uh, not, not how I would behave these days, but uh, yeah. No. So if, if you, if you want to get a sense of the annoying teenager I was. I mean, we were, we're all annoying teenagers, but that was yeah. the particular flavor of annoying teenager I was. <laughs> the folly of youth, man. It's good. It's good. And then you temper it. So um, the, the the point is, what was the study? What was the groundbreaking study? It was, I think, 1992, 1993, somewhere around there. Um, New Jersey and Pennsylvania are right next to each other. And they and and it's very densely populated. So, like when I visited my sister in Pennsylvania, um, she and her boyfriend would go shopping for booze once a month in New Jersey because the taxes, the sin taxes, were much lower. So you like you get your 
crate of wine for a month or whatever it is, and it costs you like 20% less or whatever it is. And it's just a 40-minute drive. Uh, and you were going to drive 10 minutes anyway, and you find something to do. So Americans do that kind of thing because there are these different state taxes. People are kind of aware. And, you know, the advertised price is different. You know, this thing says it costs $4.99, but then you end up paying $5.75 because the taxes come afterwards so that you can feel the law makes it like that. So you can right. feel how much you're paying in tax. And also, I will say, Americans have this incredible ability to put up with enormous commutes. I don't... Yeah understand it but they all seem to be willing to drive many 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 miles in order to get anything done or to go on a holiday or to go to work it's crazy yeah it is i mean i think it's like dense when you you got the northeast corridor is just like one city that keeps sprawling forever so you kind yeah. of, you get used to it the biggest mega city on earth in some ways anyway so up comes along a natural experiment pennsylvania and uh new jersey both have Minimum wages at like $4.35 an hour. I might get a couple of cents wrong here. I'm roughly paraphrasing. And New Jersey uh, hikes its minimum wage to, to, to uh, wait, what did I say? $4.35, hikes it to $5.05, something like that. Push it up by 75, 80 cents. And, uh, and this is done in April of the year. So in January and February, uh, Card and Kruger go around and they find a whole bunch of restaurants that are in counties on either side of the state line, but within the same met uh, metropolitan area, basically. So it's kind of like the same city. And they check out a whole bunch of things about these restaurants, what they're paying their staff, how many temporary staff they're using, how many permanent staff, uh, how many staff overall. And then they come back in November, now six months after the thing, and they check again. And the classic idea is that in Pennsylvania, you can still be paying $4.35. So there's going to be no real change in unemployment there. Or maybe there'll be some more people employed. But in New Jersey, where they've been forced to now pay $5 an hour, uh, there'll be less people employed. Uh, they either wouldn't have replaced staff or they would have uh, fired some staff or something like that. That's what you would classically assume. What actually happened was amazing. The staff in New Jersey had increased. The places where the minimum wage was hiked, the staff numbers increased by a statistically significant amount. Uh, these are like proper dudes um, dotting their I's and crossing their T's. And it kind of was just mind-blowing. So it's not the whole story. Um, it did turn the narrative on its head. But as it turns out, you know, you dig deeper into the study and you find that the staff in New Jersey, the average restaurant employed like 18 people, whereas the average restaurant in Philadelphia employed 24 people. Uh, and there was a recession in the summer. So the Philadelphia guys responded to the recession by like dropping a couple of staff. And the New Jersey guys uh, hired more staff, but that's because they were like kind of understaffed in a sense to begin with. Uh, so that's part of it. Another part of it is that the New Jersey guys hiked the prices on their menus and the philadelphia guys didn't so the recession comes right. along philadelphia guys are like we can't afford to hike our prices the new jersey guys are like well we have to hike our prices um so it doesn't if you really dig down it doesn't actually look that good for the claim that uh increasing the minimum wage increases employment um and that's and 
in a way, the Nobel Prize Committee has kind of cheated because they they gave half the prize to Card and then half to two other guys, uh, one of whom was <laughs> a, a, a Princeton professor. Um, but Card, they celebrate him for this minimum wage work, and it's and and that study they kind of single out. It's not his best study. What is amazing about it, and what they are generally celebrating, is this methodology, the idea of looking for answers in the world through proper data science, econometrics, like don't just sit in your armchair and suppose that things are going to work out one way or another way, because we've just laid out two a priori arguments. The one is simple supply and demand. The other one is that human, that wage labor is sticky, that it's inelastic, it's hard to replace with machinery, that it'll boost morale, all these other kinds of things. You don't know which one it is until you search out the evidence. Now, as far yeah. as I can tell, and the best uh, evidence has come from the UK, stimulated in part by card, um, minimum wages uh, can be hiked in ways that don't cause unemployment to increase. In other words, you've got a benefit for those low-end workers and you get a general economic benefit because their marginal propensity to spend is high. Uh, so there, you know, there's a knock-on effect of creating more jobs because there's people who can now afford a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Um, and at the same time, uh, you're not increasing unemployment. But all of this only holds if your minimum wage is much smaller than your median wage. And in this regard, card has been pretty clear that you mustn't hike it too much. Um, right. As was Kruger, uh, I just reread a New York Times article uh, where he was saying to the Americans who are now calling for, just before he killed himself, uh, you know, during the Trump era, people were pushing back and saying, we want a $15 national minimum wage. He was like, that is a crazy idea. You mustn't do that. Um, $15, by the way, would still be uh, about... 60% of the median wage, the middle person in the queue's wage. Uh, in South Africa, we're at 100% of the median wage. So we are in the zone where these really smart guys who turned the, the basic orthodoxy on its head by doing data science, we're back in the zone where it's like very simple. You just don't do what we're doing because it increases unemployment. Right. And we're right. sitting with right. the world's worst unemployment relative to how sophisticated our financial services sector is, relative to how sophisticated our infrastructure is, relative to how sophisticated our, uh, our legislative framework is in terms of the basic law and order stuff. Can I interject so this, a, fun, a, a yeah. bit of a fun fact here? Um, so I've noticed in the kind of world of meaning of, of ideas that are sort of flowing around the space right now, Amazon's under a lot of attack as being you know, supposedly the most appalling abuser of workers in human history. Um, I exaggerate, but not by much. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Those guys and, who built the pyramids had no idea. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I, I believe I read the other day that the minimum wage at Amazon um, for unskilled warehouse workers is uh, $15 an hour. And it's just kind of interesting to me how I think that the de decision by the uh, the sort of anti-capitalist meme makers to target Amazon is entirely driven by the fact that Amazon has um, brand recognition and is very big. So yeah, it's a very good target. Anyway, um, I, I was just in an argument with a friend about this who is when I told him that a majority of workers in what is it, Alabama, had voted against unionizing Amazon workers in a warehouse. Yeah, he was like, no, 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 the company must have bullied them. 
just didn't believe yes, it. Just didn't believe it could be possible can't think for themselves. Yeah. And of course, the union uh, that was trying to set themselves up, they did claim that the company bullied them, and their complaint boiled down to no, they put the mailbox a little bit too close to management's offices. Yeah. <laughs> and thought, oh, well, you know, it's not the strongest argument I've ever heard. It's not quite the same as Kasatu, you know, who are like the scabs will get their heads cut off kind of thing. It's yes, quite, uh, exactly. You know, it's not it's not like some Charles Dickens stuff where, you know, an evil capitalist sends in an army of thugs to beat people with poles. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's the kind of thing where you really want to say where there's a will, there's a way. And like, mm. yeah, that's a tough thing to say to people who are in a crap situation. But like, there, you know, at some point where there's a will, there's a way. And if the if the way wasn't found, then maybe it's because the will wasn't there. Yeah. And if I may go on a tangent about yeah. this, sorry, sorry to interrupt you, Nobel mm. Prize. The the Associated Press is becoming increasingly unreadable for me. I mean, it's not been that readable for a while, but like, man, it's just there's just so many little like. Yeah, it bugs me the, too, in, man. In the writing, it's me. just so annoying. Uh, and especially, so it it's especially irritating. I just want to preface this by saying because it has the world's largest network of journalists. Yes. Because it has the highest level of credibility. Yeah. Oh, they've and, got so and, many and good people there. Yeah. You get all these little, like, kind of digs, these, like, childish digs and loaded language and stuff about. And I noticed also the kind of bias in this Amazon story while I was doing, you know, this little bit of quick research on it. The Associated Press story quoted not a single worker who was not associated with the union, who had not voted for unionization. I went and read the Fox News one, and they had quotes from both sides, including uh, someone who said, yeah, look, I'm not in favor of unionization. You know, every time I've heard someone having a problem, management sorted it out, or they've managed to come to an agreement with it, and I just don't think we're going to get any value from paying extra dues. That, if you if you didn't read... Fox News, you would have been would. not able to see that argument in print. Yeah, yeah. It's so dude, Fox, dude, Fox's news side, look, its analysis side has had problems. Its news side is yeah. is proper, dude. It's proper. And it's yeah. weird. And in fact, there's a civil war in the company at the moment between those two flanks. Yeah. Because um, they don't quite get on. But anyway, sorry, big digression from uh, uh, Mr. Nobel no, no, Prize but, man. No, I, okay. So, so maybe I should just wrap this up by saying, okay, Paul Krugman who uh, also a Princeton Nobel Prize winning economist. Um, and well, the one I would say with a more mixed record. Yeah, people, some, <laughs> someone people love to hate because um, he writes <laughs> for the New York annoying. Times and he's often very snarky. And I, I, I admired that guy from the beginning and also find him slightly irritating from the beginning. And <laughs> I, I, he's part of the reason I stopped reading the New York Times because he went crazy in 2015. Um, yes. But uh, anyway... Um, even he said, I just read an article by him on the minimum wage. He was like, Puerto Rico, the minimum wage is way too high because Puerto Rico is stuck with the, with the national minimum wage of America, even though it's much less educated, much less productive, much less sophisticated. So right. there, the minimum wage. Like compared 17... to the rest of America, it's like a third world country. Yeah. So there, the minimum wage is 77% of the median wage. And Paul Krugman the most like left-wing champion of government intervention, making things better and paternalism and way beyond nudging. Even Paul Krugman is like 77% is crazy. Dude, we are at 100%. It's flipping heartbreaking. In this country, the, the, so many people 
there are good people who are desperate for jobs and have been betrayed by a bad education system and they just don't have the skills and their only hope is to get those skills and there's no ways they're going to get them because the government won't let them and so i wish i wish to goodness that the that the the people who criticize me and criticize my uh, research on the minimum wage in south africa would and who who want to paint paint me and us as like um as like dummy rednecks knuckle dragging mouth breathing oafs who are just in hock to big government and they think they're smarter and they whatever please be smarter be smarter than me go and read david card go and read paul krugman actually at least read the the people that you kind of that they would uh admire most if they if they if they even knew their names, you know, the, the great leading American lights of democratic uh, blue wave America, just go and check them out because even they are, are providing more than enough evidence uh, to realize that in America, it's complicated because they're on the cutting edge of global dynamic innovation. And in South Africa, it's very simple. A, a tough guy learns from his own mistakes. A wise man learns from the mistakes of others. And we can leapfrog the, the bad mistakes of others by by appreciating just where we are uh, and where we are is not princeton we are in a very simple place with very simple problems and one of them is that we're pricing half the country out of work um yeah so the other guy i've just lost his name because my phone died uh his it's like ang ang angstrom it's not angstrom that's a Lenis professor. Anyway, this other the Princeton, the, the other Princeton guy who won the Nobel Prize. You'll see it if you Google it. Uh, he's great because um, he has a bunch of literature on education and in particular on voucher systems, which is what the IRR has been advocating for a long time. Super that he's got the Nobel Prize. Uh, and he shows that like if you let parents uh, get a voucher from the government to send their kids to school, whether it's in Colombia, whether it's in the US, whether it's in Southeast Asia, it's so much better. Oh my word! It's so much better. The kids do so much better. The I have not just have at school, question. by the way, not just at school. So they do like half a standard, depending on the study. They do up to 0.7 of a standard deviation better, which is like if you were a C student, now you're an A minus student. It is like a huge. Yeah, that's shift. crazy. Um, but also better at like not getting a teenage pregnancy not uh getting stuck doing menial stuff just really better and then there's the, a complication to the study to one of the studies which is also where they compared schools with where with vouchers where there are teachers unions where, where teachers belong to the national teachers union and those who don't and unfortunately a lot of the difference goes away kind of all of the statistically significant difference goes away when you let That's the unions back in and it's a nightmare but you know i look at satu in this country and i see possibly the single worst institution the the single greatest crusher of dreams yeah. um no 100 100 and and I, I i hope that we at the institute can leverage some of this you know some we and i know anthea is working on this like just use more and more information is coming out of india of Africa, more countries have, have, have bought into the yeah, India, system. India is crazy for this kind of stuff. Like they have routinely demonstrated this ability to produce pretty good results for almost no money. Um, and not just in education, even in some kinds of healthcare. <laughs> I even heard that there's some Indian medical providers who have played around with basically doing uh, like surgeries where 
rather than having one surgeon who's super qualified and knows everything, they have like a production line where like four people have a different speciality and know like a different part of the operation. And so they each do a piece um, to bring down the cost. Anyway, it's, it's just kind of interesting that, uh, but I, I wanted to ask you a question and maybe this is just my own ignorance, but has anyone in South Africa written anything like a strong or even a weak rebuttal to our school voucher stuff? No, not that I know of. Yeah, I don't know it either. And I think it's I think that's perhaps a sign that we've got such a strong argument because its opponents just don't want to engage with it. Do the only arguments I've gotten against every I have talked about school vouchers on TV and on radio, national and local, and and international on CGN and CNBC Africa. And the only reply I've gotten is why don't you talk about it more? If we if you would only stop talking about like racism is not the problem and you know like it I was the problem the but right now there's something else if we if you and i mean the flip side of it is i've i've spoken to to two of the biggest players in low cost private schooling in South Africa uh, and i've mentioned this before and they were both like but this was quite a few years ago they said we don't want media about our successes because the point is if you can say look we already have lots of schools where you're paying a few hundred rand to 2000 rand a month um, and government is paying 2,000 rand per pupil per month. So, you know, the voucher system could affordably put them in there without any extra cost to government, and these schools are getting much better results. Uh, then you've just, that's the argument. What else is there to say? Oh. And those guys say, we don't want media because we're afraid of the government's uh, using punitive regulations to shut our schools down, to stop us from opening new uh, schools, and we just yeah. want to yeah. get the next yeah. kid. There's that crushing dreams thing again it's brutal man so okay so so the economists um basically got rewarded for developing methods of fact finding and i think that's fantastic um and i'm very proud the the chemistry prize i can't look it up uh, his name again because my phone died um, but the he, the dude is a Scot who was like quite charismatic on campus. I remember sitting in on a chemistry lecture. I was studying physics and I had no interest in chemistry. Um, but when I was a bit older, one of my friends dragged me along to a lecture because this guy's just really funny and personable and he talks in a Scottish accent and he likes to make fun of himself and he likes to make fun of like Americans making fun of him. He's just a jolly fellow. <laughs> And he won the prize for organic catalysis, which is basically like uh, like a catalytic converter. Everyone knows, well, many people will know, like in your car is a little bit of a metal, sometimes a very special metal um, that uh, makes the 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 reaction, the organic react. Organic catalysis doesn't mean organic like organisms it means organic like organic chemistry carbon hydrogen oxygen bonds mainly with some uh, 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 one valence uh, atoms getting involved there so the the thing is that rare earth metals are expensive to acquire and they're difficult and sometimes they can have potentially toxic properties usually not but can be a problem. Yeah. And so, sometimes they're dug out of the ground by starving children in the DRC, which doesn't make people too happy. All kinds of stuff like that. So so this guy figured out how to get this catalytic process, this process of basically allowing a reaction to start, 
cheaper in terms of how much energy you have to input to get it from one dynamic equilibrium to another um, to get into that confused space where it will now slip down to, to a better and more stable place. Um, uh, using uh, other organic compounds. Um, and so that has been, I mean, in terms of innovations that have saved money in pharmaceuticals and cleaning and all kinds of things, this guy's been sort of upstream of like hundreds of billions of dollars of like right, expense right. saving stuff. So this is kind of like a a, a technical meat and potatoes kind of um, gong, a Nobel gong for him, uh, which which is quite nice because again, it's not very sexy, um, but it's yeah, super but that's useful. the stuff that makes the world go round. Hmm. Hmm. So good on him on that. Um, the 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 list keeps going. Uh, <laughs> the next one, I'm the most unhappy that I can't remember his name. Makurado, uh, I think. Makurado. Um, he, he is this sort of American guy, uh, born in Japan, I think, who uh, basically like in the 60s, maybe the 70s, I think the 60s, uh, figured out how to model CO2 and average global temperature changes so if you if you go back in the newspaper archives you'll find that there was much more concern about global cooling than global warming uh, the, uh, after the 70s in particular yeah yeah and he was part of the reason that that changed and it's because he was doing good science and he wasn't just doing good science in terms of data collection but really relying on data collection and then developing a cause and effect uh, model and here you see some overlap with the with the with the economics guys where it's like it, you you need to collect your data in such a refined way that you can show causation rather than just correlation and that means looking for natural matching uh, so in an, in a laboratory you set things up so it's ceteris paribus so that everything's the same in two situations but only one thing changes that's what a randomized control trial does double blind in medicine is you you give sugar pills to some people and medicine to others and you see how it comes out so there's only one difference and so then the differences that you see between your control group and your test group are going to be explained by the one input difference one input difference whatever your output difference right. is that's likely to be it. We can't do that with climate. We can't do that with a lot of economic stuff. So these guys figured out how to get as close as best fit matching. It's often called. Um, and this is and what even, he did. Yeah. Even in labs, that stuff can be difficult to do. I mean, we had that uh, guy speak to us at Liberal Club a while ago who talked about, um, I can't remember what it was. It was some kind of crustacean. And, and even under laboratory conditions, <laughs> sometimes they just seem to grow in different ways. And it was very difficult to work out why. Yeah, um, no, it is a problem. Uh, and he was, he was Oxbridge. I won't say which of Oxford or Cambridge because of <laughs> Chatham House rules. But he was a very good professor uh, yeah, yeah. preaching the 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 norm. The epistemic epistemic humility, humility, I think. Was, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Almost as good yeah. as epistemic magnetism. <laughs> <laughs> Five dollar words. That's what they are. Anyway, USA. Uh, so, but one of the things that was really sweet about this, so I studied climate change at university. I did a class on it. It was sometimes called Rocks for Jocks. Um, but it was fairly serious. Um, it was anyway, and and there were two professors there, and they were, you know, one of them was quite activist, the other one was relatively activist, relatively less, but also still quite. Uh, but they were both so much more measured than sort of the Greta Thunberg camp. Um, and I remember towards the end hard. of the semester, 
probing them on why. I was like, you know, dude, at Brown University, they're going on CNN, and the people at Yale are going on uh, New York Times, and we're shouting about how the world's going to end tomorrow if we don't change everything. Why aren't you guys like that? And they're like, dude, it's this guy's influence. He really started the climate change department here, and he is way, way humble. And the first interview that I saw, he was asked, okay, you've just won the Nobel Prize and climate science has finally like got a Nobel gong. Well done. Uh, uh, you know, what do you want to tell the public at large? Now you've got this great uh, amplifier. What do, you want to, what do you want to tell people about climate science? He was like, if I can only say one thing, it's that it's very complex. The science <laughs> is very, very complex. And... And there are many things we don't understand. But once you get beyond the science, it's also very complex because there's the politics and there's the economics. So this is a very complicated thing, and I encourage people to think about it. Uh, so <laughs> he wasn't he wasn't encouraging like panic. He was definitely encouraging people to think. And I think that that influence has been that good for the university. A very good thing. Yeah, especially in America these days, uh, it seems that they could do with more thoughtfulness. Hmm. So all in all, like I think a pretty jolly round uh, for Princeton in the Nobel in the Nobel leagues. Uh, physics, chemistry, peace, and economics, and and two really there in the economics department. Um, I think that I think that they're all goodies. Uh, they're they're better than some Princeton people who've won the Nobel Prize, and it's nice to just remember that. Um, in some ways, there are parts of institutions. I won't say whole institutions because Princeton has been really disappointing in a lot of ways uh, mm. in the last couple of years. But there are parts of institutions that are very much devoted to merit, to hard work, to excellence. Um, Those little little pockets of excellence still holding out against the tide of mediocrity that seems to be yeah. engulfing the planet. And getting some recognition, you know, because and, mm. and that is, you know, part of it's the money, but part of it is like, I remember what it was like to be a Princeton when, when, when Nobel Prize season comes. And, dude, it is a thing. The gardeners and the janitors and the students, like, we are so far removed from the hoity-toities. And yet, we're kind of part of the same team, and it gives a bit of chias, and Oaks feel lacquer, and they're like, hey, man, we've we done it again. And <laughs> ain't that groovy? And it is, dude. It, it flipping is. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Right, so we've got about 15 minutes, 14 and, minutes left. And also, it, it gives me an excuse to yeah. re drink carrot juice, which is orange, because uh, Princeton's orange. So I orange. didn't know that. We're reclaiming the orange from that other orange. You know, there, there's an older orange. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, he who shall not be named. <laughs> I, I, I must say, I am... Um, <laughs> I'm rather... Oh, I've completely forgotten what I was going to say. Mm. Um, Segway as to the next thing, dude. We have a couple of other right. things we want to cover, and we sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, global energy crises, right? Not one. There's a whole bunch. Uh, Britain. I haven't really studied it too closely, but uh, from the sounds of it, there's a shortage of drivers uh, for their trucks, and that's causing uh, supply chain problems. Um, there's supply chain problems all around the world because containers are too expensive. Um, on ships and various laws are, are helping to make that worse. Uh, and then we've got gas problems in Europe. Um, uh, lots of negotiations and politics around gas lines from Russia. Um, 
I think Nord Stream is one of the big ones that people are fighting over because Germany is making it doing deals with Russia to bypass Ukraine in terms of uh, supplying gas to to Germany because uh, Germany runs off of a lot of gas. Uh, there was bad renewable energy um, in in a lot of Europe as well because uh, I think the wind didn't blow as aggressively as normal or something. Yeah. Yep. So that's caused problems, particularly in Germany, which has been really big on green energy. Uh, and at the same time, China, for various reasons, most of them to do with the fact that they are fighting with Australia and banned the import of Australian coal, uh, is now running out of coal for its power stations and is having to have load shedding. <laughs> so maybe maybe rather than South Africa started to act like China. China started to act like South Africa. This isn't that an mm. interesting idea. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and at the same time, there's panic in other countries. Lebanon had a power outage because they ran out of electricity entirely. So they had to shut the whole grid down. I think it was a couple of days ago uh, or, yeah. or a week or so. And India, it's not clear whether they actually are running out of power, but there are some fears of it. Um, uh, yeah. Although the Indian government is saying, no, 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 we've got enough coal. We've got enough coal. Still, everyone, and is everyone else is everyone else is saying epistemic humility. We don't think you know <laughs> how much coal you have, so yes. this is not a lie. <laughs> this is just a nonsense. But um, uh, my my uh, sort of thought on this is, and uh, I said this last night on Roman uh, when I was on Seafair show with with Roman Kavanagh, Rob Hutchinson, and who else? Chris Hutton, oh, and Seafair's Frank Coquetza. That. Um, you know, there's, there's because of the push for green technology, there's been this uh, big who to do, how to do about how coal is the enemy, coal is dead, coal is passing us by, the age of coal is over. Well, <laughs> seems maybe not. Um, not coal yeah, still makes the, a lot of the world go round. The, the obituary was premature. Yeah, Very much so, so I think that the Russian one I'll get into just a little bit, partly because when Nova Gazeta won the Nobel, I was like, oh, man, I need to read some Nova Gazeta. And then I, I read sort of their take on this. Um, the, the, Russia's, Russia's gripe is that its, its main pipelines to Europe go through U Ukraine. And so Ukraine has the power to just charge money for the, you know, so it just makes $3 right. billion a year for doing nothing. And that kind and of irritates have, them because yeah. they don't have a puppet there anymore. So it feels like they're giving money to the EU. or to no, well, They're Emus. literally giving uh, money to the people who they're fighting a war with because Ukraine Correct. is resisting Russian. Yeah, the Donbass is still a hot zone. So right. well, kind of cold hot zone, but still a hot zone. So you can see why from a realpolitik perspective, the Russians want to drive a pipeline through the North Sea, um, you know, above the north coast of Europe, but below the Scandinavian countries and get it from there. So th from the Russians' perspective, they're super irritated because this has cost them more money because they, because firstly, it costs more money to get it into the pipe. Uh, and then secondly, building the pipe has been expensive. And so they're just like, all of this money is like money that we could have gotten. Thirdly, the price of gas in on the Netherlands exchange has gone up eightfold this year. In Europe, on average, it's <laughs> gone up six or sevenfold. Sevenfold is the most widely cited number. This is partly related to why the UK is getting its problems because they can't slaughter animals because that takes CO2 to put these air bullets in their brains. And that is a byproduct of fertilizer. And the fertilizer requires is this sort of gas input and they're not getting it. Um, because it's too expensive, so it doesn't make economic sense anymore. So th these things are connected. And 
and the Russians are like, the Novogazeta guys are like, dude, come on. The stuff is selling at five, at seven times more than the usual price. We could be making all of that money. And then that's going to, you know, buy, build schools or do whatever good stuff the government wants to do with them. So that's the Russian complaint is that they're not making enough money. Here's the complicated thing. The Russians have built this pipeline and they're like, we now want to open the taps. And it's sort of just finished being built. You need to do a little bit of inspections. But the Germans are like, even if you can't get it inspected uh, for safety, we don't want you to open the taps. And that's really kind of Brussels, a little bit Germany. Um, and the reason for that is that it's like too much monopoly power. There'll be too, too much market share will be coming from one country. And they complain because the Russians are supplying uh, only Gazprom is allowed to sell uh, gas beyond Russia's borders. So Rosneft is uh, like Gazprom is like one of the world's largest energy producers. And, and Rosneft is like just behind it in the queue. Uh, but it's not allowed to export. And here's a little quirky thing. Like if you look up the, the head of Rosneft, oh, I'm forgetting all my names because of the <laughs> characters. Um, he's also Dmitry though. D he's Dmitry Ivanov. I can't remember his surname. Anyway, yeah, Dmitry that's Ivanov. a safe, safe, safe bet, safe guess. <laughs> I remember his patronymic. So dude, he is like in his Wikipedia entry, the very first thing is it says like best friend of Putin, closest ally. Dude, rubbish. This guy, his biggest obstacle in business is that he wants to export gas and Putin won't let him. Because if there's two companies exporting gas, Putin no longer has that easy hand on the tap to turn it off or wow. threaten to turn it off if some other country is not doing what he wants it to do. So they want to make sure that there's only one country exporting so that they have that power of negotiation. And yeah, let me tell you, average Russians love it. I have been in taxis in Moscow during the Ukraine war, when it was hot, when it was cold, like, well, aren't you guys worried about the sanctions? They're like, they will never do proper sanctions against us. And they haven't. I say, why? Mm. They say, you know what happens after October? It gets cold. It gets very cold. And we turn off the taps. And then we see them shiver. It is foolproof solution. So this is like, this is, this is a very, this is a very popular kind of, uh, so it's not just Putin that's holding back Rosneft. It's also like the, the Russian cab drivers, um, and some of the academics in my family. Anyway, never mind. Um, there's a lot of beef with the EU, let me tell you. And the EU doesn't always behave well, so you can almost get it. Uh, but the point is that, uh, the EU is uh, a very easy organization to dislike <laughs> Yeah, that doesn't matter that, what side of the political spectrum you're on. <laughs> that they're currently pumping like I don't know, fifty or seventy percent of the capacity through through Ukraine, so they could pump more. So the Europeans are like, please pump more gas because that'll bring the price down. And the Russians are like, we're happy to pump more. We pump it through the new pipeline we made, the one that you haven't approved yet. Just approve it, then we pump more. It's going to be great. You want more? We we give you more. And then the Europeans say, no, 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 pump more in the pipe that we've already got. And then the Russians say. I can't hear you. The signal is not good. Call me back when you have <laughs> opened the tap to the other pipeline that we spent many billions of dollars to build and that you are trying to cancel. Bye-bye. And then they wait a couple of days and then they call back and they say, hey, would you please give us some more gas? And they're like, oh, you want to open the pipeline? And they say, no, 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 through the other pipeline. And then they say, okay, we can't hear you. So it's kind of like it is ridiculous because their argument is the price is too high because Russia is not selling enough. 
But their argument is also, we don't want Russia to sell us more because then we're going to be addicted to Russian gas and that puts us in a compromised geopolitical position. So we want the like exact sweet spot, which basically means they are doing the same thing the Russians usually do. Like when you're threatening to turn off the taps, they're threatening not to open the taps. It's They're using their geopolitical interest to manipulate the market. If you just if it was just market forces, the price of gas would fall through the floor because both pipelines would be open. They'd be pumping lots of gas. The Russians would be making all of the money. Novaya Gazeta would have nothing to complain about anymore uh, on that front. Um, but the great thing about it is that Boris Johnson and Joe Biden have been trying to make friends. Uh, they haven't really found an issue to really solidly agree upon. But now they do. Uh, because they both agree that the the problem with Europe and the UK's economy right now is Putin. You know, they're just like, there's no counter argument like from Putin's side, well, he wants the second pipeline to be open and there is some argument to do that. They just ignore that and they're like, he's holding us to ransom uh, and he's the baddie and, and we're the goodies. And they both have populations which are a lot like the Moscow taxi drivers who, if you just say Russia, kind of switch off their brains and are like, that's terrible. Uh, this is super evil. So this is kind yeah. of like two Maybe. dummies. In my opinion, it's like two dummies. This is two bald men fighting over a comb territory. This is like neither side's acting uh, smartly. And uh, it's doing real damage. And the flip side of that, the good side of that, this is pretty gloomy. The good side is that if you play back the tape on two crickets uh, or the AP news, the biggest uh, global story before the pandemic hit in earnest, in earnest uh, was the Saudi-Russian price war over oil. Yeah. Uh, the price plummeted because the Russians kind of decided not to go along with the OPEC price setting. And then the Saudis were like, well, we can flip and sell oil for free and still make a profit. So we'll drive the price down even further. And that was interrupting global supply chains and it was getting really tetchy. And, uh, you know, Trump was threatening uh, all kinds of things. Uh, anyway, uh, and then the player kind of overtook that story and now we're sitting in a position where, and then in between, everyone got a turn, hey, to be like the global story. <laughs> Black Lives Matter got the turn. The Trump maniacs got the turn on the 6th of January. The Palestinians and the Israelis got their turn. Everyone got their turn. Uh, the Russians didn't. There was no real big Russian story. Uh, but now they're back in the global headlines. And I think they've bookended the the, the plague in earnest. Like coronavirus is still around, but... Um, it is the case that international flights are back to normal, that Denmark has had uh, no lockdown, has canceled its sort of uh, state of disaster, and it's, you know, been like that since September, and it's actually been fine, and all other, you know, lots of countries are normalizing. Singapore and New Zealand is canceling zero COVID. Um, uh, yeah, if you look I at even, uh, so although our government hasn't caught up, and we, you, we are actually running a campaign about that, um, uh, we uh, uh, our numbers are really good on COVID. Like, there's very few cases in the country, and there was even an article today, something along the lines of, "Is herd immunity finally kicking in in South Africa?" Yeah, um, which is so yeah. irritating because herd immunity kicks in from the first recovery, uh, yeah. because it's herd protection, and it'll never be herd immunity because that's still like if you think it's a binary, like, oh, now the herd's immune, then that means COVID's going extinct. People are still stuck. Everyone kind of that and I speak to COVID, recognizes yeah. that it's not going extinct, that zero COVID is a myth. But at the same time, we so much of our language and our activity suggests that we haven't really come to terms with the fact that it's that it's not going extinct. Herd protection, we had 20% herd protection 
in after wave one, 50% after wave two, 60% after wave three, whatever it is. It's not immunity. It's not like no one's ever going to get it. But it is like at this stage, it seems like even if we behave at our worst, uh, which we've never said before. We've said before, if we behave well, we might have enough protection that we could stop a wave from really taking off. But now it's at the stage. I mean, I think we said it before, we might be at the stage where even if we behaved at our worst, but probably not, but it's possible. But now it seems uh, like slightly better than even chance that even if we do behave at our worst, well, we won't be able to um, cook up the kind of uh, second wave deaths that we saw in uh, December, January, nearly a year ago. Yeah. So that is good news, man. It's like we fumbled and done about news. as badly as we could, but people who want to be vaccinated have been vaccinated. People who have recovered have recovered. Some pe people are definitely still vulnerable, but it's like as a social issue, um, I think that it's uh, we, we seem yeah. to be in a good space. Yeah, yeah, we are definitely in a better place. And I personally am completely liberating myself from the bonds of abnormal behavior um, this coming Friday, which is two weeks after my second Pfizer jab. So yeah, looking forward to that. Uh, Welcome, my son, to the machine. <laughs> and uh, yeah, no, that's going to be a good time. All right. Well, we're an hour now. Let's let's call it here, or at least no. try to call it here because we always go long. That, no, hold on. No, there's one. Yeah. Do you want to talk about the posters? Yes. Did we have we to talk, talk about the posters? We talked about them on other things as well. So, so I was going to suggest that we just direct people to those uh, places. I mean, you okay. did a whole video for the CRA. I did a video for the Center for Risk Analysis on the DA poster Fandango. Uh, my sort of headline take is, I mean, let me just, my headline take is this. I think they totally could have worked if they hadn't put them up in Phoenix first. It was just the craziest place. The issue with <laughs> yeah. the posters to me is not a race thing. It's a law and order thing. It's that putting them up where they did, like right next to the bail hearing, effectively, of people who've been charged <laughs> with murder, seems a hell of a lot like saying, hey, those murderers or those potential murderers, we think they're heroes. That's the wrong message. And around the country, it is complicated with like, to what extent did people who go and defend their homes do so within the confines of the law? Obviously, when the government is not around, yeah, uh, or when the law breaks down, context. it's difficult to draw that line uh, because everything. But is so many people tried so hard to do it. I know many people mm. in KZN, very close to Phoenix, who were yeah. who were blockading roads, but who were not spraying bullets. Uh, yeah. You know, not and car boys. Phoenix just seems like the weakest place to make the law and order argument that people were defending their lives, their limbs, and their property in a in a in a disciplined fashion uh because mm -hmm. i don't know what happened there i've been trying to follow it up uh it's very hard to get facts from a distance but as far as i can tell there are there's prima facie evidence that people not just broke the law in a technical sense but like really broke the law um and so that seems like the worst place to start it and i think it's i think the da kind of screwed up a great opportunity to to say look the, the anti calls people racists willy-nilly and that's unacceptable and uh, we're not into that and also we're not afraid to say it's good to defend property rights and defend yourself and right. uh, and she's trying to take away all guns which is crazy 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 um 
Like we, so, we want there to be regulations and training and limitations and all kinds of stuff. But we, we you know, we're not crazy. Like so, they so that be, anyway, they could have said that, that but that was said, not the message. Yeah, right. That's that that being said, though, so you know, we we kind of uh, you definitely agree. Uh, I would say with the with the kind of maybe the sentiment behind the message, but you thought that like the way they did it was really dumb. Um. But what both of us, I think, agreed on afterwards was that uh, they should not have taken him down or apologized. And yeah, when uh, uh, I, when I heard about this, I said the first thing I thought was they mustn't apologize because whatever benefit there was to putting out these things up politically, um, it's going to all be undone if they apologize. And well, they apologized, yeah. and that was an embarrassing humiliating, miserable adventure. Um, and according to the Sunday Times, which wrote about this, I think, on, on uh, yeah, this weekend, uh, this was not the, the this was not the desire of the party leader. So I think the DA should think very carefully about the people on its on its federal executive who perhaps uh, undermined their own leader on this issue. Yeah. No, there wasn't a lot of solidarity in that sense. And I do think, but I mean, I do think that starts with the mayoral candidate in Pofalatse, uh breaking and saying, you know, this post is a really bad idea because yes. it's it's like one or the other had to be left out to dry. Once that yes. said, once Stian Hazen did his interview, which I thought was strong, like Gareth Van Orsen and this mm. commentator that was our colleague, he said explaining is losing. And you've said it sometimes. I've even said it sometimes. <laughs> you know, I think in a way it's like if they had if they had put the posters up properly maybe change the wording maybe just kept the wording but put them up like not just in phoenix um mm. started out by putting them up somewhere else where there was like a clear case of like no one was killed because these guys just you know set up the blockade and like handed out water and there was no racial profiling it was just really good um it, you'd have less to explain so to some degree explaining is losing but also explaining is winning like we I think that's got to be part of our background thesis is that most South Africans are decent people who want to work together and yet we're not. Why is that? It's because somehow we're not good at explaining our values to one another, explaining our interpretations and our actions. Like there is a failure to communicate in this country uh, and that's not going to be solved by saying explaining is losing. I think that gets solved by saying, look, we've done this thing. Uh, it is awkward, uh, but we're going to relentlessly, every time the ANC says, we're going to say yeah, you right. guys called all indians thugs you can't do that you guys yeah. um presided over the flippant breakdown in law and order chaos, right. you can't do that half of your party was behind it like this is definitely not our issue we are trying to say that what happened that is wrong and that we're for the south africans who want to stand against that that is and we're going to keep explaining that you're going to keep saying we support racists or we support murderers and we're going to keep explaining that we don't do that um I think at some level that is how you win. I, yeah, message discipline, is it the right time to do it right now? Maybe not. But yeah, then you wade into like the dark arts of of social manipulation. And I'm not sure that I really know much about that in the in this, a grassroots level. Yeah, this is a point I made of uh, uh, I made on um, Roman's show. Uh, oh, sorry. Not, why do I keep calling it Roman's show? Cicle's show yesterday. You know why I'm calling it Roman's show? It's because Cicle's internet crashed halfway through. Oh so no! Ramon just started making jokes, 
And we started, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, CTEC did come back, but it was, shall we say, a bit disrupted. Um, the, the thing I made on, on, on CTEC's show last night was that, like, we go on and on. It's like a cliche of political analysis. We need messages that suit the local community, right? And in this case, mm. it was a message aimed at the people in Durban. Yeah. Right? Who had stood on those barricades, as we saw in July. And then <laughs> when someone does do a local message, the country loses its, its immediately mind. like, no, this is national. You're supporting Aranya. And then very clever analysts, people like Gareth, write articles about how this breaks with message discipline. You can't have local messaging and message discipline. The two are not compatible. Right. In a Logically. Way. Yeah. Right, 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 right. You can have like a broad agreement on themes. Yeah. Uh, you know, like service delivery or something. But at the end of the day, people have different circumstances and you cannot run a national campaign and a local individual campaign at the same time. And that kind of annoys me because, like I said, it's it's this cliche to call for, oh, no, the parties are doing local messaging. And someone yeah. does local messaging and it causes us the roof to fall down. <laughs> but that's why I'm saying, because when I saw this thing about where they're placed, I saw they are placed in Phoenix and they will be placed elsewhere in KZN. And I was like, mm. at that very local level, that's your screw up. You should have found mm. three little whatever's suburbs or towns or whatever, where it like was clearly done right. And, and say, you guys were called racists. Yeah, and, and we're and, calling and, you heroes. You, and then you, you can mushroom it up from there. Yeah. Right. Because now now how it came out, right, as far as it, it seemed, it seems like the DA's provincial chairperson, Dean McPherson, was the kind of the main guy behind it. Um, it's not clear to what extent he consulted with other structures in the party. I mean, he may have, he may not have. But they certainly didn't have it in writing that he had gotten approval for these things. Uh, maybe yeah. he got a verbal approval. And... Uh, as far as I know, the, it came to attention via social media and people like Eusebius McKaiser. Yeah. And if they're the people who bring this thing to national attention, then you've even lost the from the first Durban, moment. Yes. You are in such a bad place. Yeah. <laughs> That's not a good place to be. Yeah. So, Dude, so yeah, I think like, what's interesting about that is that you have experience in campaigns in, in politics in a very real way. You've run for office, you've won, you've been involved with politics your whole life and i think most of the listeners are going to be much more like me which is to say we all have an opinion because this is the kind of thing that happens and we immediately jump to like if i was in charge i would do better so you can see it hasn't worked and you're like well i would do better and the easiest way to do better is like just to not have done it in the first place and that's the kind of knee jerk but the but the sense i'm getting just from this is like well, it's actually, you could do better, but in a more complicated way. Mm. Uh, that doesn't mean giving up on conveying that sentiment and taking advantage of the political opportunity afforded by the July crisis to say, you know, this is how things can be if you vote one way and things can maybe be different if you vote another way. Um, the contrast is stark. Uh, and in terms of wading into the race issue. But... Uh, yeah, you. I suppose you get a different sense of what those options are if you've actually been involved a bit, and and so you know how you, right. that doing that doing exactly that thing, like a media, like a media doing us around it, so that you're explaining right away. And I do think, but I right. think from a naive perspective, it does seem like like they must have known the posters would be provocative, 
and like they failed to prepare for the backlash. Like well, that 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 is what suggests that the that's a rookie error. Yeah, and I think I think. And you can see in the way that it sort of played out. And this is this is not this is genuinely genuinely my thoughts, and not like some me trying to hide uh, my inside knowledge because I don't really actually have that much inside knowledge on that. On no, this, but just experience. Right, yeah. right. I think that probably what happened is Dean, who is pretty close with John Steenazen, they're friends. They've that Dean supported John pretty much just like whole political career. Um, they're both from KZN. They're both from KZN. They've been in the same caucuses. They're probably the closest allies in the party. Uh, Dean is definitely John's best buddy in, in, in politics, at least. And I, I get the feeling that, that Dean thought he maybe pitched this to John verbally and said, hey, I've got this idea to do this in, I think it was my constituency or my, or, or in KZN, at least, you know, where I'm the chairperson. Yeah. What do you think? And John was like, oh, yeah, that sounds good. And he said, well, what about the backlash? And he said, ah, it's fine. I'll back you. And mm. when the thing happened, that's what happened, right? John went out yeah. in front of the media and he backed Dean. He backed Dean. He said, no, these posters are fine. They're good. And he fought with the journalists and gave a pretty tough interview. But then the rest of the party found out. And uh, Steenhuisen realized that actually he was not nearly as in control as perhaps he thought he was. Mm. He thought perhaps there's no way the party will stab me in the back and go against me because A, I'm the leader, and B, I publicly defended these things. Uh, and he found out that uh, twas not the case. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and it's pretty, I mean, there's detail to how it got voted down when it was withdrawn. Mm. That's super interesting. Mm. But I think we maybe will withhold that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, uh, okay. Well, there's how, how's that? You, you consider that covered? <laughs> we, what, what video you talked about on the CRA's channel? Yeah, CRA's YouTube channel. Yeah. yeah. I don't know um, how much else I have to say. I mean, I do think that this is the kind of thing that's going to be talked about for as long as as people can keep it alive, and mm -hmm. that it's kind of it's interesting to me, um, because it's always interesting to talk about what could have been. And, you know, the ways that, uh, but on the other hand, the, the ball keeps rolling. I don't, I, I, I imagine that this is going to be the last time I really touch on this. I'm, yeah. I, I'll, I'll just finish with this. Like R.W. Johnson had a piece about where he touched on this, you know, South Africa's preeminent intellectual in some ways, Oxford Don and all that uh, in politics web. Um and he, but he sort of squeezed this issue in. He really wanted to write about Cape independence and kind of, you know, I suppose give some like tacit ideas that like, you know, maybe this one day will be a good idea if the DA, you know, if, if, uh, if things keep going the way they are, like the DA wins in the Western Cape, but doesn't really manage to win metros outside of it. And you get this asymmetric performance. Uh, the argument for independence will just get stronger. And his sort of sting in the tail was that South Africa only exists because of a colonial project. It took the Brits, you know, <laughs> uh, half a million foot soldiers and quite a few million, if you include support staff and all that, um, to to bind Transvaal and the Free State and uh, Natal and uh, the Cape into one country. And so, you know, in a way, if the ANC wants to argue against... Um, secession and has to argue for this colonial legacy uh, which I think he takes to be very clever um, 
That hasn't. It I don't think that stopped a single African national, racial, national, social, nationalist, whatever, in any part of Africa before. Yeah, because that's I been don't... the case in so many places, and yeah. it's never stopped anyone. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. I just don't think it's that clever. I, th you know, I think it's like, or it's too clever by six. Um, I, th I think, I think more to the point. If you want to talk about the ANC and defending colonialism, is they should look at Saul Plyke. Um co-founder of the ANC and his affinity for the concept of equality before the law uh, as a, a manifest, at least nominally, by the British Empire. His appeal to that, his rejection by that, by the Brits, you know, that he was fated by the London press, but kind of overturned by the real politic officers, uh, officials in the foreign office. Um, I think that's, I think that's more... It's less spiteful in a way. It's th th there's real common ground. Like the anti really should care about their, their their founder, and they should and they should reflect upon why those values uh, that drew him uh, to call himself a proud British subject. Um, I I think this thing I don't know. It's I suppose in a way I'm I'm trying to contrast the posters I guess a little bit with the secessionist movement because I really think the secessionist movement is um is is currently so lucky that it might be doing more harm than good more good than harm uh on a cost benefit analysis but it's just luck i don't think it's going to last a moment i think it's very dangerous and i i, I don't think it, that's a good idea to encourage because the because the values underneath it aren't stable uh whereas the values underneath that DA poster, like however clumsy the execution was, the values strike me as stable. Call out race baiters, say you can't do that. And then of course people are going to come back at you. But you must, you've got to do it anyway. You've got to say, you well, can't call all Indians racist. You can't call I mean, you know, uh, everyone who defended their property. Uh, the, the EFF marched into Phoenix against what they called quote-unquote racist Indians. I mean... You've got to stand up to that. There's no ways. Yeah. There's, no, there's no ways that we we get where we need to be without standing up to that. And it is always going to come with political fallout. Uh, yeah. So I guess be smart about how you do it. But that seems like I suppose I'm trying to distinguish between a good goal that hasn't been well executed, and like a bad goal that has so far actually been well executed. <laughs> yes. And and the, and the secessionist thing versus the poster thing kind of brings that out. But maybe that's just special pleading. Uh, the election is kind of look. No, I, 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 I look forward to all the thank you cards from South Africans who get to vote on November first. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, hmm. Anyway, <laughs> um, let us let's call it there. Do you have any recommendations this week? Um, I can't recommend the Squid Game uh, because although everyone, geez, like I mean, I drove around listening to the radio a little bit. Like everyone's everyone is raving about it. No. Uh, I haven't watched a moment of it, and uh, my fiance has now like watched half of it. I'm not watching any of it for the next couple of months because I can't bear to watch a thing that everyone's racing to watch. Because uh, then I'll feel like I'm compelled to have an opinion, and sometimes it's just nice to not have an opinion and not try and relate it to other people's opinions and just have like an individual experience. So I'm going to wait for that. Uh, oh, yeah, dude, it's an anti-recommendation. But I, if you've already started it or you want to start it, go for it. You know, I'm just like. <laughs> Dude, I, I barely watch more. TV. And in part, it's just because of that. Because uh, I often don't find 
discussions about series particularly lightning. I don't know why. There's no particularly logical reason for that. I just don't enjoy talking about it that much. And so <laughs> I just don't watch TV. Um, but yeah, my mom's watched some Squid Game. She says it's pretty cool. Uh, although it's interesting, uh, one can interpret it as having an anti-capitalist message. Uh, but uh, yeah, that's... That's which not is unusual. odd for the South Koreans. Except it's not yeah, that well, odd for the South Koreans because they are so confident that they don't mind pointing out that yes, capitalism does have some contradictions. Well, it's also yeah, it's also Wouldn't I think part of this thing, it's also part of this thing that when you uh, when you become very successful, uh, <laughs> you you start to to eat the tail of your own success. I mean, the Americans are basically the prime example of that. But anyway, yeah, I mean, I quite like. Hold on, on that note, otios is a nice word that I saw in a, a good column published today um, on the Liberal Fightback group. It was highlighted, uh, this guy who was... Anyway. Um, Otios means sort of non-functional, like useless. And the article was basically saying um, if, if things keep going the way they're going, lots of skilled, particularly white people, but also other racial minorities are going to leave the country and then be... Will become otios um you know it'll be like a symbol but not something that makes much of a difference and okay maybe he's right i don't know but i looked up the etymology of otios because like it's such a that's a five dollar word in a way that uh, is a five dollar word <laughs> it comes from the latin for leisure and so as the word has progressed so too i think uh our societies you know as you get more and more leisure uh things get more and more useless they go from being sort of genuinely pleasurable to merely decorative to like actively wasteful. Uh, and Otio seems to sort of capture that history in a word. So I will recommend, uh, I think it's my dad's, I think it's his favorite movie. Anyway, it's one of his favorite films. And I watched it again with my friends recently, and it is The Blues Brothers, uh, 1980 film mm. with John Belushi. And he was apparently absolutely super high on coke the entire filming um and you can sort of tell but <laughs> it's a it's a great fun film it's weird it's got a lot of character it's not for everyone because it's quite slow paced you know as a lot of older films are and it's got lots of musical numbers and if you don't really like that kind of rhythm and blues soul music uh you, you might be a bit bored by it but it's got a sort of wacky sense of humor and you know in a sense the movie is one gigantic car chase where the police, a group of country and western singers, the Illinois Nazi Party, and various other bits and bobs all chase the heroes to stop them from delivering money to save an orphanage. And uh, yeah, it's quite fun. Anyway, <laughs> that's all I have to recommend today. Okay, and shall I do that? my actual rec? Okay, shall I do my no. actual recommendation? Yeah, go ahead. The more the merrier. It's not like it's we don't slightly, run over time every episode. <laughs> it's a slightly longer one. Um, feel free to tune out. But if you're still with us, um, I was reminded of this poem over the weekend because I was chilling with some Germans uh, who, old family friends, and they ended up talking a lot about the law, uh, about all the legal nightmares they've had. And oh, it's so, it's so, there's so many rules. And they were kind of trying to commiserate, like, okay, you guys live in a lawless place. But like when there's law, that's also a problem. But I, I, I love the law, uh, and we spoke about excellence uh, to start out with, and uh, I think, yeah, excellence and the law, 
kind of combined two of my favorite things. And this is just about my favorite poem about the law. Uh, so it's a, it is kind of long. Take a minute or two. Uh, but it's by W.H. Auden, who uh, cut his teeth uh, in his 20s in Germany in the 20s. Because Germany in the 20s, before Hitler, was actually, Berlin was like the best place to be gay and fun-loving and leisurely and otiois and all these kinds of things. Right. Um, and uh, so when things got a bit uh, darker, he emigrated and then wrote a poem about the law as as the as the fascists were really taking over and breaking it. So here is Law Like Love by W.H. Auden. Law, say the gardeners, is the sun. Law is the one all gardeners obey. Tomorrow, yesterday, today. Law is the wisdom of the old. The impotent grandfathers feebly scold. The grandchildren put out a treble tongue. Law is the senses of the young. Law, says the priest with a priestly look, expounding to an unpriestly people. Law is the words in my priestly book. Law is my pulpit and my steeple. Law, says the judge, as he looks down his nose, speaking clearly and most severely. Law is, as I've told you before. Law is, but let me explain it once more. Law is the law. Yet law abiding scholars write, law is neither wrong nor right. Law is only crimes punished by places and by times. Law is the clothes men wear, anytime, anywhere. Law is good morning and good night. Others say law is our fate. Others say law is our state. Others say, others say law is no more. Law has gone away. And always the loud, angry crowd, very angry and very loud, law is we. And always the soft idiot, softly, me. If we, dear, know we know no more than they about the law, if I know more than you know what we should and should not do, except that all agree, gladly or miserably, that the law is, and that all know this, if therefore thinking it absurd to identify law with some other word, unlike so many men, I cannot say law is again. No more than they can we suppress the universal wish to guess or slip out of our position into an unconcerned condition. Although I can at least confine your vanity and mine to stating timidly a timid similarity, we shall boast anyway. Like love, I say. Like love, we don't know where or why. Like love, we can't compel or fly. Like love, we often weep. Like love, we seldom keep.
And with that, keep the uh, flag of liberty flying. <laughs>